Integrity is the essence of everything successful. This from the late and great Buckminster Fuller. Of course, one of the biggest things that can make or break us is integrity. Inside of integrity are many layers. For example, allowing success in is key. How often we resist the very thing that we are most desiring, creating a story or an excuse as to why we cannot have what we truly want. Are you with me? Blaine Bartlett shares on today's podcast this exact point. Success is about receiving what already exists. We simply must organize ourselves to receive. When we are in integrity with the natural laws of the universe, we will create and attract all that we desire. Integrity shows up or breaks down all over the place. We just need to look. When I was far more self-focused back in the day, I had many lessons that focused a magnifying glass on all the places I was out of integrity. Now, I'm not saying I was a bad person or did bad things. It's just that I simply was not allowing my best self through, not allowing my highest service to surface and integrate. Having a mission-focused element to your life is key as well. Knowing that you're up to something of value to humanity sure feels like being an integrity to me. Does it to you? At this stage in life, I simply must be doing things in integrity that are mission and purpose driven. Can you relate? Simply, if I do things just to do things, but they are not serving my deepest heart and those that it could serve, there's a part of me that suffers. And guess what? I've suffered enough, like so many, silently suffering using drugs or alcohol or whatever else to numb out the pain of not doing what our deepest heart truly wants. Staying busy, distracted, and self-medicated. This, taken from a recent Gallup poll article, at the heart of any company is its mission. A business mission defines what it stands for, its purpose, and the reason for its existence. Mission declares the difference a company seeks to make in the world. A strong mission is lofty, ambitious, and sometimes audacious. Brilliantly said and poignant for knowing how many humans strive for living a life of meaning, being a part of something bigger than themselves. As Nelson Mandela said, There is no passion to be found playing small in settling for a life that is less than the one you are capable of living. I think back to a time when I was a punk. (laughs) Now I'm talking childhood when mischief was just part of my everyday life. I was never a bad person. I simply had not found my calling and had so much energy to burn that I was a total madman in the way of exerting energy through action sports, cars, snow skiing, motorcycles, bicycles, whatever. You name the crazy sport or edgy thing and I've done it. I used to beg my parents over and over to allow me to get a dirt bike. For years and years and years, my parents said no. I never gave up on my desire to ride. It simply felt like a motorcycle was my mission. There really is no better way to describe it. Sometimes we derive focus and purpose from our burning desires. Sometimes our purpose will arise from a painful defining moment. Here's the thing. Once I got the motorcycle and was in integrity with my deepest heart's desires, all of my needs to exert energy in negative ways vanished. I was organized in a way that allowed everything to flow. Can you relate to this? The funny thing is my mom circled back years after saying that it was one of her greatest decisions to finally let me get a motorcycle. I believe a lot of her positive hesitancy was simply her fear response and motherly instincts to keep me safe. My brother had been through the ringer and in many accidents when he was younger. At some point, I will share my youthful perspective of all that he put the family through. Just like me, a lost, young, rebellious soul with lots of angst and energy to burn. As Robert Ballard says, follow your own passion, not your parents, not your teachers, yours.
Now, those who knew me as a young man would probably say I was a goofy, rebellious punk with no direction. My direction showed up when I became committed to disrupting what was not working. Another term for this, one that Buckminster Fuller speaks of often, is perturbation. The actual definition of perturbation. A deviation of a system, moving object, or process from its regular or normal state of path caused by an outside influence. In my case, oftentimes, the outside influence was the police. I was oftentimes running from them on my motorcycle or in a car. I got caught several times, but got away just as many. The point is this, I was out of integrity until I wasn't. Enough perturbation in my life straightened me up and sent me on the right path. At first, that path was motocross racing, which then led to producing events, speaking, consulting, and producing this podcast, which has led me into many other epic things. Winters in Costa Rica, summers in a BMW X5 SUV, pulling around a brand new camper trailer all through the West Coast. I'm sitting in the camper trailer now as I write this. Cricket singing their tune in the background. It's truly magical. If I had not followed my passion, stayed in integrity with myself and my desires, I would not be living the life of freedom I love and am right now. My mission is continuing to surface and I see the path illuminating. Are you ready to illuminate your path to take the leap? I can show you how. Welcome to the Face Your Dragon podcast where we help you, a messenger with a mission, leverage your fear to amplify your voice in the world. On the show, we open up the concept that what you are most afraid of and most resisting are the very things that will set you free. With courage, with clarity, with contribution, you can have it all. This show will engage in deep, enriching conversation with thought leaders, best-selling authors, celebrities, athletes, icons, and regular Joes who have faced their fear and are now using it to create impact in the world. I'm Brad Axelrad, and I'll be your host. Today's guest, Blaine Bartlett, is one of the most dropped-in and solid dudes I know. He's married to my sweet friend, Cynthia Kersey, and they together have raised millions of dollars to build schools and feed many in Africa with the Unstoppable Foundation. Cynthia, an Oprah guest, and Blaine, the president and CEO of Avatar Resources, a consulting firm, and has served clients all around the world since 1987, in between his fly fishing trips. He's a master somatic coach, an active member of the Transformational Leadership Council, and alongside of me at the Association of Transformational Leaders. His latest book is Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. It was published in July 2016 and is a number one international bestseller in multiple categories. Pretty cool. Give a listen to my dear friend share his brilliance with us. Blaine, it's so great to have you on the Face Your Dragon podcast today. Welcome, my friend. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you for the invitation to join you. <laughs> you bet. So I know that you and Cynthia just produced the Unstoppable Gala. Let's maybe start there. I'm curious to hear that how that event was. This is one of the first ones I've missed, and I made that commitment to you that I'll never miss it again. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah, you better. Uh, no, it, it was an amazing event, as they all are. But this one in particular was just extraordinary. The Beverly Hilton Hotel, you know, home of the Grammys and that sort of thing. But what made it so much was just the, uh, I think the consciousness and just the experience of flow that emerged as the event unfolded. We had some incredible talent and some amazing auction items and that sort of thing. But the foundation's been around for nine years. And what we did this year was just, I think, you know, really solidified the presence in a significant way 
of the foundation as a force for changing some things in you know, some very interesting parts of the world that need some transformation. We raised uh, well over a million dollars that evening. I was just thrilled to be a part of it and humbled by uh, the, the, the generosity of, of the guests that were there. Oh, it's so amazing to hear. I, I've got a bunch of distinctions from that, but flow being one, I'm curious, did this flow more than normal or in recent years? Yeah, actually it did. And part of that, I think I mentioned establishment of, of the foundation is kind of a force right now. Yeah, embedded in that is the development of a team that has gone through this a couple of times now. So it wasn't a reinvention of the wheel exercise. It was, we, we know how to do this and we know how to partner with people to co-create an event, to co-create an experience that is what we want it to be, you know, just kind of manifesting it you know, in, a, in a very interesting vibrational way. Yeah, Cynthia and I both, and as well as the whole team, you know, there was a lot of meditation around this and just a lot of very intentional and mindful work to position this before it ever physically manifested. So, you know, it, it was just, I mean, all of the pieces fit together. And for me in particular, it was just a wonderful example of what happens when that kind of mindfulness, that kind of attention as well as intention coalesces and comes together. It's, you know, there's um, a notion that success isn't about achieving what I don't have. It, it's really about organizing myself to receive what already exists. And I think that's what the foundation did this time. That's what the whole team did. That's what the experience was. It was organizing ourselves to receive what already existed in our minds. Oh, it's so beautiful. I'm presencing that right now. And what the analogy that came to mind is there's you know, we're oftentimes pushing a boulder up the hill for a while, right? And then eventually we get to the top of the peak and the boulder will push us. <laughs> so, Sisyphus. <laughs> yeah, right? So it is so freeing to know that as business owners, and many of the listeners are small business owners or solopreneurs, and hearing that that team can synergize to take Covey's sort of paradigm of synergistic ways of being and creating the the group mind that can happen. It sounds like that Napoleon Hill sort of group mind thing took over and you were able to create that sort of elevated way of being that was mission-based and pulled all that in for you guys. It, it truly. I mean, I made a distinction sometime, well, actually in a program I just delivered the other day about being a mission with a business or a business with a mission. And what really transpired was that we were a mission you know, that happened to have a business attached to it. <laughs> but the mission took the lead. That's beautiful. And oftentimes we start businesses to create some sort of a triangulation and in, in there's the purpose of the business, there's the actual business, and then there's kind of that mission-based aspect of it. So that distinction I haven't heard, Blaine, can you speak more to that? You know, you, yeah, I think I saw the one you're referencing where you said Starbucks is a mission with a, a business attached mm -hmm. to it, right? Yeah, as you know, and you, maybe your listeners don't, most of them probably don't, but I, I've lived my life in business. And one of the things that I was struck with very early on that there was an inherent toxicity in most businesses that I worked with. And by toxicity, I mean the spirit of life seemed to be squeezed out of not only you know, the business itself when you walked in, it didn't feel uplifting or invigorating, but also the people. You know, there was, we had some pod people walking around in many of these businesses. And I got curious about what was going on with that. And so that's kind of a backstory. The, the, the net of it, however, 
is that every organization, I mean, literally, without exception, every organization is conceived out of some ideation, some idea of what I could bring, what the founder could bring to the marketplace, and I'll just use marketplace as a broad example here, that they think would enhance the quality of life of the person that's going to consume or buy that product or service. So there's a mission that underlies the bringing to market of that product or service. You know, it's egalitarian in one sense. And of course, we need a business entity to deliver that promise. And if we're successful, what begins to occur is a shift of attention. And I literally mean I'm making a distinction here between intention and attention. Energy follows attention. There's a shift that occurs where people begin paying attention to how the business is performing. And then you start getting a linguistic creep where the language shifts from the delivery of the mission or actually from the mission itself to the delivery mechanism and how effective and how efficient and how we're doing with our quarterly numbers. Are we hitting our targets? I mean, that is a vernacular creep that is almost impossible to defend against, and it does occur. And at some point, there's a morphing where the mission with a business now becomes a business with a mission. And the mission is no longer leading the process. And I referenced Starbucks when I did this talk about this. You know, when Howard Schultz came back in after he had turned over the CEO reins for a while, he was noticing that the company seemed to be getting away from what made it unique and different. And there was an esprit that seemed to be missing. So, I mean, he famously shut down every domestic U.S. coffee shop, Starbucks store, and retrained, quote, unquote, retrained. But basically what he did was re-exposed everybody in the organization to who are we? Why do we do what we do? What's our mission? And it cost the company approximately $10 million to do that, not counting lost revenue for that time that they had the stores closed. Wall Street thought he was crazy. Shareholders went ballistic and all kinds of stuff. But Howard held to his position and said, we've got to get the mission back in front of who we are. Yeah, something's broken and I'm going to take extreme measures to make sure that's what real leaders do, right? They're willing to take that big leap into the unknown because they're trusting their gut so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the blocks that get in the way for folks. You know, your training is mostly in the corporate culture, is it not? Predominantly. I'm doing more and more in particularly in uh, non-domestic markets, China, Europe, Africa in personal development arenas, especially in the, in the leadership field. But it's a target-rich environment. There's a lot of folks out there and a lot of organizations out there that I have an opportunity to work with because there's you know, some serious things that need to be, I think, addressed. I love it. So what, what are some of the blocks that get in the way in those cultures that you found, uh, both on the corporate side and the personal transformation side? Well, there's two things here that I you know, just top of mind. And I think, I'd, you know, just as a kind of sleight of tongue here to kind of open the, the conversation, you know, in a world of practical dysfunction, where do we begin? So what that speaks to is that we get caught up very quickly in having the externalities of what goes on around us in our marketplaces, in our economies, and you name it, determine what we do in terms of our lives and in terms of our businesses. And to the degree that we are held hostage by the conditions that we find ourselves in, we never are going to excel and we're never going to break free. So, I mean, when we put this in the context of the dragons, that is thematic for this podcast, 
I think one of the greatest dragons you know we encounter, both organizationally as well as personally, are the ones that we can visibly experience and we think are actually real. And reality is a construct that is a fascinating thing when you start to unbundle it. I mean, it's no more real than... Yeah, the moon being made out of cheese, I think, is one way to really exaggerate. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, the electromagnetic spectrum actually wasn't published until 1930 for the first time. I mean, that, yeah, the, the full electromagnetic spectrum, if you think about it this way. And what that suggests is, I mean, our perception of what reality is in, is incredibly narrow. You know, we physically perceive less than a millionth of what the electromagnetic spectrum actually suggests is reality. And we act as if that millionth that we see is everything. You know, Buckminster Fuller a long time ago said it, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to describe a multidimensional universe using a two-dimensional model. <laughs> right. And, and we use two-dimensional models, time and space primarily being um, the culprits here, you know, to describe our experience of what's real. And it limits us. It really puts us in a box. Well, can you refresh my memory what perturbation is? Perturbation. 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 Disturbance. Yeah, when I perturb something, unsettle it. Uh-huh. So the perturbation is what we're looking for. And when you cause a shift to occur, it perturbs a system. And when a system is perturbed, it looks, you know, systems seek stasis. You know, they, they look for an equilibrium of some sort, a balance. And so there's always pushback when you start pushing in a system. It's always going to push back on you. It's, it's basically looking to reset. Yeah, where's the new balance point? Oh, it's so true. I mean, even with neural pathways and, you know, with, with humans, we come up against some old, deeply grooved neural pathway and boy, there's going to be resistance, right? Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, here's where, I mean, I kind of hold my head because I don't want to pull my hair out. We are today, I think for the first time in human history, recorded human history, facing both a global crisis as well as an existential crisis. Mm. And this is the first time in our history that we have faced both. And we don't know what to do about it. I mean, you talk about perturbation. You talk about things that are disrupted. You look at what's going on with the climate, with global warming, and you know that whole conversation, as well as what's going on existentially with, you know, when you start taking a look at who are we, where do we belong on a planet that had not, you know, now has 7.2 billion people with a dwindling resource base. We are faced with some incredibly perturbing challenges. And what we do with that is going to be really important. How we face that, how we turn and face into it, rather than putting our heads in the sand and and going to denial. Well, you know, the Face Your Dragon brand is really about turning and facing whatever you're most resisting and most afraid of, because those are the very things that will set you free. They're your money maker. They're your gift to humanity. They're your peace. The Joseph Campbell quote, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. I say it on almost every podcast. So it's interesting at the, on the micro and macro level, we are facing, as you said, some interesting times. And until we actually get real and face what, what it is as a society, as a, as a race, interpersonally, personally, like, yeah, it's, that's key, Blaine. I mean, what, what are some distinctions or action steps people can take to really start breaking loose some of this stuff? Well, you know, that's really the reason I wrote my last book, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. It's because there is light at the end of the tunnel, and, I, and it doesn't necessarily have to be an oncoming train. 
I think that if we can get our consciousness collectively organized in a way that we can begin seeing other possibilities than what we have you know, historically organized ourselves around, particularly in the last 500 years, we have the ability to turn this, this thing around. But it's not going to happen you know, just by hoping and wishing and praying. So this begins to address, I think, you know, part of your question about what can we do. I think one of the things that is absolutely fundamentally required is that we break the Cartesian notion of duality, that we are separate from the rest of this planet, the rest of the universe. We are intimately connected. You know, a good friend of yours and mine said the other day in, in a workshop that you and I were actually attending, and you know, this is uh, Schmuckenberger, that all failures of ethics are failures of intimacy. And I just love that quote. All yeah. failures of ethics are failures of intimacy. And intimacy has to do with connection. And so the question and the answer, you know, the question of what do we do? And the answer is, you know, how do we scale intimacy globally? We have to begin by scaling intimacy locally. We have to recognize that connection, relationship is absolutely fundamental to everything else occurring. And we have not been taught societally, educationally, culturally in many cases, to create and sustain high-quality relationships. You know, we tend to approach our living of life from a perspective and a perception of isolation, of separateness. There is no me out there, or there's no you out there, I should say. There's only me being expressed in, in all kinds of different forms. And to the degree I can begin to recognize that and address you as a part of me, that's where we begin to do some things. You know, when, when businesses create product, or, you know, I'll just use product here, part of the, the way that that begins to shift or needs to begin to shift is instead of sourcing with an eye towards disposability as, I mean, we just take you know, mining as an example. You know, you're going to dispose of the tailings of your, of your work or the uh, affluent that comes through the process into the streams and the oceans of the world. That's a disposable sort of a notion. That's not working. That's not tenable. We need to approach from a position of how do we source with recyclability in mind? It'll cost more. That's fine. We're going to pay the, you're going to pay the piper one way or the other. But how do we source the production of our materia, our, our products with recyclability as, as part of the uh, process? Yeah, baking it in from the beginning. Just build it right? in. Yeah. Build it in from the beginning. Yep. And consumers will pay for it. They will. And I mean, if everybody starts doing this, you know, everything gets lifted in the same way. I mean, consumers are paying for it anyway. It's just not explicitly embedded in the product. It's, it's a societal cost. And in this country, in the U.S. in particular, I mean, you look at our health care costs as a consequence of a disposable mentality. It's crazy what we continue to do. Well, what's really interesting is we're shifting back into a coal paradigm, potentially, which uh, we're bringing back all the coal jobs. Like, wow. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Their coal jobs are not coming back. They have been on a decline for 25 years. Obama had nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah, so let's not get overly political. But I mean, what what dragon are we really facing? It sounds like we're facing the biggest dragon of all. That's That's the livelihood of humanity as a species, potentially. And it's really interesting. You know, how do you get companies to create that shift in themselves culturally so that they see the bigger picture and they're not so focused on the bottom line, but they've actually got a bigger paradigm? It may seem obvious and 
it is to one degree, but money talks. And where, where I think that this begins to get traction is when the consumer begins to buy in a different way. Edelman has done a lot of surveys on particularly millennials and Generation Z purchasing habits. And these are cohorts. These are demographic cohorts that buy because it's socially responsible to buy from this company as opposed to that company. And there is an economic force to, to be countenanced here. When consumers begin to vote with their dollars, vote with their pesos, vote with their euro, things begin to shift. They really do. And you can also begin to make a business case for why it's better to do it this way than the historical way that we've been doing it. It is an existential question for a lot of companies. I mean, and by existential, I mean it, it, it calls up. Their question of how do we survive if we are taking this more generative, more holistic, broader you know, perspective. And I think that's a, a question that actually needs to be addressed because it will begin to address business practices that are no longer sustainable. You know, when you put quadruple bottom line accounting into the mix as opposed to just a single line profit, you know, P&L, but now you start accounting for you know, as well as profit, you start accounting for people and purpose and place, you know, the, you know, the environment, you begin to have businesses doing things differently. The metrics are what begin to shift this. You know, I'm on the board of directors of an organization called the World Business Academy. And the World Business Academy has been around for 30 years. And it's a think tank. And one of the things that we came up with a couple of years back that is now beginning to bear fruit was the notion of beginning to change metrics, the metrics by which large companies are actually measured as being successful. Take the traditional success metrics, you know, return on investment, I mean, whatever it is you know, that you're going to put in there, the, you know, the profitability, um, you know, you know, all of that sort of stuff, shareholder return, and tweak it in light of an emerging reality. And what's developed out of that is an organization that's called Just Capital, J-U-S-T, Capital. And we're beginning to measure just companies using a very interesting amalgam of, of metrics that are not just traditional P&L, profit, ROI sorts of metrics. And you're going to begin seeing in the next two years here some very interesting reporting coming out about what companies are considered to be just and that is going to drive a change in business practices. Fascinating. So there's a accountability into, yeah, there's just a, an eyeball into accountability there. That's great. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole idea is what are people paying attention to? And again, I, I make a distinction between intention and attention. Energy will follow attention. And if we start focusing attention on these metrics and we make a business case for why they are important to be paid attention to, energy in the form of cash, money is simply energy in motion. That's all it is. Energy will begin to flow in that direction. It moves in that direction and it moves away from what's not being paid attention to. That's interesting. So obviously money is currency, it's energy. I'm hearing so many layers to what you're saying there that at the consumer level, when that shifts, the values and principles aren't aligning for the consumer. I'm so curious to hear your millennial and generation Z that they are a unique, different breed. They're so impact focused, right? Um, yes. Right. They, they, yeah. They, they get focused. it. Yeah. They get it. They, they want to create an impact. I know Simon Sinek kind of uh, joked about that. If you saw that video he did, uh, the interview he did uh, talking about millennials. 
Oh yeah. And, and yep. the cell yep. phones and all that it was great. Great. Very well done. So I'm hearing the layers of it's sort of an inside out and outside in. There's all these different inroads to creating the transformation that will make life on this planet sustainable. Yeah. You raise an interesting point there. I mean, you know, out goes everywhere. Out is omnidirectional. And as long as we're focusing out, you know, I mean, it, it gets to be bifurcated and it gets to be, you know, that, that's where separation comes from. And we look out typically and, that, and we see separation in only goes one direction. It only goes to one place. Six plus four equals 10, but 10 is comprised of countless sums. You can get to 10 counting, but it all comes back to the center. So if we begin to look at consciousness being the derivative, you know, it, it is the, the source of everything here, whether you call it God or spirit or you know, Krishna or whatever you want to label it, there is a unifying consciousness that gives form, takes, you know, takes out after. You know, Max Planck, the father of quantum physics, you know, said as far as he can tell, that you can get behind everything except consciousness. I can get behind all forms of matter, but I can't get behind consciousness. Consciousness is the originating source. And if we can come from, if you, if you look at that first source notion, you can begin to find ways to begin to you know, work with this. I mean, you know, Christ of St. John, you know, same, you know, famously talked about the dark night of the soul, you know, this thing where I just, you know, the existential calamity that kind of goes, I don't think there's a dark night of the soul. The soul doesn't have a dark night. There's a dark night of the ego. Right. And that's what we're wrestling with right now. The ego that we have created, this egoistic sense of ourselves as the overlords of the universe, is being challenged, and it's being fundamentally challenged. This is the existential you know, piece that we're wrestling with right now. If we can get back to this notion of connection, we begin to behave in an ethical fashion. If we get back to this notion that everything is intimately intertwined, ethics you know, begins to take on a different perspective. We don't dump mercury into the ocean. We don't reverse climate change regulations in service of somebody making money. We take trade-offs off the table in that regard. And this goes again, I think, to how you know, we answer the question, what do we begin to do? I think one of the things that we begin to do as businesses is we take the notion of trade-offs off the table. And by trade-offs, I mean you're going to get the short end of the straw here in service of or in deference to somebody, usually a shareholder group, that is going to get the bigger piece of whatever it is that we're trying to divide here. We take that trade-off conversation off the table and we start looking at how do we ensure that all stakeholders, not shareholders, but all stakeholders in this business, including the environment, benefit out of what it is that we're doing. So it's a shift to a global view instead of the bottom line view, right? And we're all, we're all part of this at some level. That's, that's the interconnectivity piece. You know, you brought up quantum physics and Max Planck. <laughs> we're also interconnected in which I've never looked at it this way, Blaine. This has been so eye-opening for me to recognize that how entangled we are with corporate America and their decisions and how you as a leader or a change agent inside of uh, corporate sort of value systems or value sets can shift and save the planet. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. We have conferred in, in the U.S., we've conferred personhood on corporations, but we have not given those corporations the same moral obligation of personhood as we insist that real live human beings accept. So we end up with sociopathic behavior. Today's capitalistic model, you know, the capitalism as it is actually operated today is fueled by irresponsibility. 
Nobody taking responsibility for the consequences of their actions. It's an open loop system. There's, you know, there's no you know, cause effect accountability. It's just, you know, let's just do it and you know, somebody else will pick up the tab. That is a sociopathic approach to living. And that's what we see many large organizations exhibiting is a sociopathic behavior. Mm. <laughs> I wasn't going to get overly political, but boy, it seems as if a lot of the initiatives that are being thrown around sort of loosely resemble some of that sociopathic mindset. I've never really anchored sociopathic behavior beyond a person. So it's interesting that a corporation, as you said, it's an entity, it's a, it's a person, can exhibit those. That's interesting. I've, ne I've never thought about that. Really interesting. So let's share more specifically. Give us a very clear action step that we can do at sort of grass roots level. You know, you're doing some of this by raising a, over a million dollars with Cynthia's foundation. I would assume you're on the board for that too. You've got to be involved at some level, right, Blaine? Yeah, I am on the board. Yeah. So the Unstoppable Gala, I mean, tell us the mission of that. Well, the Unstoppable Foundation's mission, very simply, is to provide access to education to every child on the planet. And there's a whole lot embedded in that. When you start really looking at what access to education entails, I mean, there's clean water that comes into play, or access to clean water, there's health care, there's you know, a lot of different things that come with that mission that we actually address. So it's not just a function of building schoolhouses. It's really about creating a sustainable community. When we walk away in five to 10 years, they have a healthy environment for their kids as well as for uh, the community members. We're working in some of the most difficult parts of the planet to make this happen. And part of that initiative, just so I understand, sort of at the fundamental core level, is to really education, of course, can get a, a lot of folks out of poverty. I mean, that's really what it's about, right? Well, it's you know, interestingly, education is kind of like the canary in the coal mine. With education, obviously, comes poverty eradication. I mean, we're living today at a time where we literally have the fiscal wherewithal to eliminate abject poverty, you know, as defined by you know, people living under $2 a day from the face of the planet. We have the ability to do that right now. Whether we have the will or not, that's a different question. But we have the ability to do that. If we can achieve an educational rise, and a rise in the school years that children have access to, you begin to see some interesting consequences to that. There's something called the Flynn effect, which has to do with rise in intelligence, IQ intelligence, you know, over decades. And it's not a function of just book learning. You know, that, that is part of it. But, you know, with that kind of an educational approach, you begin raising intelligence. You know, and part of this has to do with the you know, motor neurons begin to, you know, rewire in the brain and, you know, what people start paying attention to in different ways, the way that they start to process information, all kinds of stuff. Uh, healthcare, you know, you begin to eradicate some very horrendous diseases as a function of education. Economic, you know, that's the one that goes without saying. I mean, you begin to you know, see increases in uh, economic status in these areas where education has been focused on. So, there, I mean, there's a lot of things that occur with that, and education is the pointy tips of the spear. In order to make that happen, there's all sorts of infrastructure build-out that needs to occur as well. Very good, man. Thanks for expanding on that. So good to know what you guys are doing. And was this the biggest year of, of fundraising yet? Yeah, this was an extraordinary year. You know, the foundation hit two million last year in 2015, which triggers an automatic audit. 
IRS requires that on a 501c3. Oh, interesting. And our audit came through without any citations. It is absolutely unheard of to have an audit come through this clean. It was a a major benchmark. I would expect nothing less, I mean, than than that, guys. (laughs) We were so excited. I mean, because organizations sweat these things because these are rigorous. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) They really do. So let's talk about rigor here. What, What kind of rigor can you get folks? Like, let's leave the listeners with a place that they can have that level of rigor in their lives that'll create transformation in themselves and their family and their community and in the world. Yeah, you know, we, we're all setting goals for ourselves all the time. And the idea here, and this is what I want to leave the listeners with, is to make sure that the goal is worthy of who you are, not the other way around. Set goals that require you to be the best that you could possibly be. And when you set that kind of a goal, yeah, you can think about it in terms of an ABC structure, an A-type goal. I know how to get this thing. I mean, I've done it before. I can do it again. And a lot of people will set A-type goals as, as the way that they live their lives. And the problem with that is not the fact that you keep acquiring things, but you keep acquiring the same sorts of things that you always acquired before. The purpose of goals is to grow. The purpose of goals isn't to get. So an A-type goal isn't going to let me grow much, if at all. A B-type goal is maybe something that I've not done yet, but I've got a pretty good idea about how I can go about doing it, probably because I know people that have done it. So I can go get some coaching or I can go get some mentoring. And yeah, it's, I don't see it as out of the realm of possibility at all. It'll require me to stretch a bit. So there's a, there's a bit of growth involved with that. A C-type goal, this is the type of goal that I'm talking about. This is the one that I want to have be a goal that is worthy of who I am. It's the goal that I don't have a bloody clue about how I'm going to go about attaining it. It's one that scares the bejesus out of me. But it's also one that I am intimately connected to. It's one that I can't not say yes to. You know, when I think about it, I just light up inside. So that's the important piece here. When we start working with goals, most people will think in a... um, linear construct, past, present, future, and the goal is out there in the future someplace. And because it's a linear construct, our past oftentimes influences what we see as possible in the future. You know, we're continuously drawing on our past, and our past colors our experience of the present as we look out into the future and say, that uh, I'd like to do that, and you know, that sort of thing. But what's interesting about that is because of that linearity, almost unavoidably, there's a cause-effect sequencing that goes into play here, which is what stops a lot of people, because they can't see the cause-effect continuum extending out to that thing that is so far out there that they go, I have no idea how I'm going to, most of us want to know how we're going to get the what. And if I'm trapped by that, it goes back full circle to what we began with, I've got some problems. The way that this works for me, when I start thinking about making sure the goal is worthy of me, I forget about the future. As a matter of fact, I'm going to rotate time. Here's an interesting mental exercise. Take time and just rotate it 90 degrees. And what I mean by that is take this linear arrow of time and rotate it 90 degrees so that there is no past. There is no future. There's just this now. And add into that now this notion, everything that has ever been created, ever will be created, or ever could be created, already exists in this now plane. It just hasn't been manifested. So when I see type goal, what I'm doing is I'm saying, 
literally, and this gets into some quantum physics, I mean, everything is about vibration. All I'm doing here is saying I'm vibrating at a certain frequency. I am literally vibrating at a certain frequency right now that is producing, manifesting, literally manifesting a reality that I observe and experience. This C-type goal exists in another plane of existence. It exists at another vibratory level that I haven't achieved yet. So I connect myself to it in the present. I see it. I smell it. I feel it. I taste it. I mean, all of that stuff. I bring senses into it. I begin vibrating internally at a phase state that is different than what I normally would be existing at. I take time out of the notion, and it becomes a vibrational focus. And this is where miracles occur. Honest to God, this is where miracles occur. When people pop into this notion, and I, I work with this all the time, it already exists, I just haven't arrived yet. It already exists. So I good. just haven't arrived yet. It pops up, or I pop into it, and it manifests. Now, it's not magic. It's just the way that the, yeah, that's the, way, that's the, way the universe works. It is the way the universe works. Oh, so, so good. set a goal that is worthy of the you that you know you are in your heart of hearts. That's oh, really, really a great place to leave this interview, Blaine. Thank you so much, man. That was uh, an incredible way to wrap up the law of attraction from a very, very intelligent perspective. So thanks for that, man. Brilliant. Oh. Yeah, so where does, it, where does everybody find you, Blaine? Where do, where do we find you? A couple of websites. I've got some what I think are fascinating writings up on my blog, idealsinmotion.com. My company website is Avatar Resources, all one word, avatarresources.com. And I've got a personal website, blainebartlett.com. Cool. We'll be sure to put all those in here in the show notes so you guys can click on those. Blaine, it's been an absolute honor, my friend. I'm just so happy to hear what you guys are up to and what you're up to personally. Just loving how much I've seen you guys blossom in the, well, I guess, uh, when did I first see you there? It's probably been four or five years at the first uh, gala, but it's just amazing to watch you guys continuing your deep work in the world. So thanks for doing that. Yeah, the unstoppablefoundation.org. If people are interested in getting more information about that, that's the website for that. Yep, we'll throw that in too. <laughs> awesome, Blaine. Thank you so much for being with us, buddy. Uh, hey, Brad, my pleasure. I want to thank our guest for sharing his hearts and brilliance with us. Thank you, Blaine Bartlett. We're all so grateful for your contribution to the world. You can find out more about Blaine at blainebartlett.com. As we dive deeper into facing your dragon, I want to offer the opportunity for you to discover the number one hidden fear stopping you from earning what you're worth. Be sure to take the one minute quiz at couragequiz.com. If there's something here I mentioned that you want to review again, keep in mind we keep all the notes for you, including links to everything we've talked about today. You can find the show notes for this episode at faceyourdragon.com forward slash episode 020. And finally, I would like to invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review for the Face Your Dragon podcast by visiting faceyourdragon.com forward slash subscribe. Be sure to share this episode with your tribe on social media if it was useful for you. We'd love that. And join our conversation in the Face Your Dragon Facebook group as we talk more about your greatest fears being the very thing that will set you free. Tune in to episode 21 because I'll be sharing the brilliance of my dear friend, Paul Hoffman. 
If you've ever heard the jingle, have you driven a Ford lately? <laughs> well, he wrote that. And maybe it's before your time. I think it was in the 80s, almost before mine. We talk about the principles of success in today's wacky world. Pretty good stuff. This incredible being and many more on the Face Your Dragon podcast. See you on the next show. And remember, when you face your dragon and take the leap, you will break free.